Let me read uh, some words that come. Normally, I, you know, I'm amazed. Clearly, I had a prophetic waking up this morning because uh, I got dressed in the dark. I looked down and I've got Christmas tree socks on. Well, lo and behold, we've got a Christmas passage to read from the Bible. It's from Matthew chapter 1 and verses uh, 18 through to 25. If you've got a Bible in front of you, you might want to look at it. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. As what Craig said uh, is true, he's uh, asked me not just to come and tell you everything I know about Jesus, but I guess to share with you from this passage what matters to me about Jesus. I can't say everything, but this is a little bit uh, from what I think Jesus means to me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, please now, would you open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things about you in your words. And by your Holy Spirit, melt our hearts, mold our wills. We we might live in humble obedience to all that we read. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are many photographs that have captured the imagination, the popular imagination over the last century. Some of you may not know these, but perhaps imagine your mind. There's the one of Albert Einstein sticking out his tongue, if you know that, wild hair, and he's got this tongue sticking out to the camera. Or Marilyn Monroe, maybe you know that picture, with her dress billowing up as she stands over the air vents. Or rather more sobering, maybe the image of a young, naked nine-year-old girl crying on the streets of Vietnam back in the Vietnam War as she and others experienced a napalm attack. But few pictures are both so important and so unrecognisable as one that scientists call Photo 51. I wonder if you've ever heard of Photo 51. It was an image that was captured back in 1952 by someone called Raymond Gosling. He was a graduate student working in King's College London in the lab of Rosalind Franklin. She was an expert in what's called X-ray diffraction crystallography. I have no idea what that is. But photo 51 is just a fuzzy image of a bit of gel containing some DNA. It was a key piece of evidence, that photo, that helped Watson and Crick eventually to identify the chemical structure of DNA. Now, photo 51 was called that because it was simply the 51st photo that they took from that bit of gel. 
But this is what one of the archivists who works at King's College says, Jeff Boswell says this, arguably it is the most important image ever taken. In that one image, you see for the first time the secret of life itself, the very building blocks of all life on earth. Yet I want to disagree with Jeff. Well, maybe not quite. You see, as stunning as photo 51 is, I want to suggest to you that if Mary, the mother of Jesus, had been living today in 2022, I am certain that each of us would be able to look at a photo even more significant than photo 51. An image that would reveal to us not just the building blocks of life, but the very source of life itself. Indeed, the very creator of life itself. You see, most women, when they find out the good news, they normally find out via pregnancy testing kit in the bathroom. So I'm told. My wife greeted with me at the front door, I remember, once when I turned up. Look, she said. For Mary and Joseph, it was a somewhat different experience because they heard through two angelic visitations. A bit odd. But like all expectant mums and dads, once you know the news, there is no doubt they would have whizzed on down to the Nazareth maternity units at the hospital and had their first scan. And a bit like I remember when I got the scan of our first child, we came out clutching this little photograph. And of course, that image always looks like an upside-down locust, doesn't it? But in reality, what Mary and Joseph would have had in their hands was the image of the Holy One to be born to you, who will be called the Son of God. That's what the angel said to Mary. Or as Matthew tells us here, what Mary and Joseph would have held in the hand would be a tiny grainy image of Emmanuel, literally God with us. Or as Paul describes in Colossians chapter 1, Mary would have seen in that grainy image in her hands the visible image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. I believe the scriptures teach firmly and clearly that Jesus Christ is God's. That Jesus was the one through whom God created this universe. He's not just a holy man. He's not just a holy teacher. He's not someone who perhaps experienced a walk with God somewhat in a higher plane than the rest of us had. He is and was the creator of the universe. I believe what Jesus told, sorry, what the angel told Joseph, what the scriptures tell me when I read them, that when I look at Jesus, I see God in all his fullness. If I want to know what God is like, I simply need to look at Jesus Christ. He is not God light or diet God or God zero. He's not a bit of God. He is 100% fully God in human bodily form. And when I read the Gospels, everything in his life shows to me that that's true. He had power over creation. As he spoke a word... And he stilled a storm. As he prayed a prayer and two loaves and five fishes suddenly were able to feed 
5,000 men and their families and 12 baskets left over at the ends. He had power over human illness as he healed the man born blind with a touch and a lame man he got to walk with a word. He had power over evil as he cast out evil spirits and sent them into pigs. And he had power over death as he called to a tomb and a man dead for three days walked out. And what really got him in trouble was his power to forgive. As he told a lame man lowered through a roof that his sins were forgiven. And the religious leaders knew that only God can forgive sins. Jesus does what only God can do. There is no doubt in my mind that Jesus is God. But can I be honest with you? This is something a clergyman should not say. Perhaps even less an archdeacon should say at the front of church. But sometimes I do doubt. Sometimes I do doubt my faith. Sometimes I wonder, am I making all this up? Have I just been taken for a ride? Maybe as many say, as many religions would say, Jesus, yeah, he's a holy man, a great teacher, but he's nothing more. You know, if I'd been one, do you ever play that game? If I was one of the disciples, which one would I be? I know exactly which disciple I would be. I would be Thomas. I know that without a doubt. You see, I'm a scientist by background. Yeah, I'm a doctor of cider. Honestly, I really am. I spent three years looking at the science of cider fermentation. They give you a PhD for that stuff. Can you believe it? I'm a scientist by background. Evidence matters to me. I need convincing before I'll believe stuff. But you know, at those moments when I'm asking myself, is this really true? Is Jesus really who he says he is? I go back to the, uh, to the words of C.S. Lewis. Do you remember C.S. Lewis said, you know, there are only three conclusions you can come to when you look at Jesus. Either he's barking mad, he's a lunatic. Because for anyone to go around saying, I'm God, I'm Messiah, and you're not, then I'm afraid you're mad. I've been to psychiatric units, and I have sat and talked to people who think they are the Messiah. Sadly, they're not. Lewis says either he's mad or, secondly, he is bad. Because basically, he's lying. Because someone who said, I'm going I'm to uh, 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 be handed over and suffer, and then I'll die, and then I'll rise again from the dead, if that is not really what happened, he's a liar. And all these people say, yes, but you can still appreciate his wonderful teaching. No, you can't, because he's a liar. It doesn't matter what he said. And so in the end, I go through those two, and I go, well, he's not one, and I know he's not the other. There's only one conclusion, that he is God. You see, that's why I'm a Christian, why I'm not a Hindu or a Muslim or a Sikh. I have enormous respect for those who follow those faiths. But I'm afraid I'm convinced by the evidence of the New Testament that Jesus is God himself. That's why I can't believe that Jesus is one way to God or one route amongst many. 
or that each religion provides a perspective on God because as far as I can see, if Jesus is God, why would I need any other perspective? When I've got the full fat version right there in front of me, that is God himself, which is why Jesus said, and we sang it, I am the way, not a way, I am the way. I am the truth, not a truth, the truth. I am the life, not a life, the life. For no one comes to the Father but by me. Emmanuel, God with us. That's why I believe and trust in Jesus Christ. But maybe that seems a bit intellectual. And I'm a bit like that. I need convincing in my head. But there's also something else very powerful about that truth that God is with us that means so much to me. You see, at the heart of the Bible is the idea that God lives with people. Do you remember when the people of Israel were wandering off through the desert? The great thing was that God was a great camper. If you remember, he had a tent made, a big tent. So whenever they pitched their tents, he pitched his tent too. And whenever they packed up the tent and got moving, the tent was packed up and God moved with them. And they knew God was with them. Why? Because they saw a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire when it was night. And there's that wonderful verse in John's Gospel, isn't there, which you often hear talked about at Christmas, where it says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. Literally, it means pitched his tent, tabernacled amongst us. We discover in Jesus that God is one who is always with us. Wherever we go, he is not remote. I remember a friend of mine being asked to go into a Muslim school with Muslim staff and asked, why are you not a Muslim? (laughs) That's a scary gig, my friends. Why are you a Christian and not a Muslim? And one of the things he said this, he said, if I became a Muslim, I'd have to give up the knowledge that God is right with me. I'd have to live with a God who seemed remote and far away. But when I'm a Christian, I know that God lives here with me. There's that wonderful moment, is there, when Jesus tells his disciples, I'm off, actually, I'm leaving, and the horror they must have felt. But he says, don't worry, I'm not leaving you alone. I'm going to send the counselor, the Holy Spirit, who's going to come and live within you, God's empowering presence. And that extraordinary truth that Jesus still says, I will be with you by my Spirit, even here, even today, even now. I mean, it is mind-blowing, isn't it, that for nine months, Mary had God living within her. Do you know what's even mind-blowing? That if you know Jesus today, for however many years you're a Christian, God is within you. No less than he was in the womb of Mary. And he doesn't just reside, it's a transforming presence. This week I went online, I looked again at those iconic photos that I was talking about at the beginning. And I was especially struck by the horror of that young Vietnamese girl in that napalm attack. And I found an article that was written by her in 2018. Uh, she's got quite a long name, but I'm just gonna, she's known by the name Kim. I, I couldn't attempt the rest of the Vietnamese name. And she describes how life so affected, uh, was so affected by that childhood experience of war and the napalm attack. She describes how the physical pain and burning uh, that she had felt for years just carried on. But worse was the hatred and bitterness that consumed her for what had been done to her. And she looked for ways to deal with the impact, but she could never find anything that did. 
And yet her life turned around on Christmas Eve 1982. Having tried various religions, she found herself at a small church service in Saigon. And she heard the news, the same news that we've heard today, announced to Joseph of a saviour who was born. And Kim says in the article, how desperately I needed peace. How ready I was for love and joy. I had so much hatred in my heart, so much bitterness. I wanted to let go of all my pain. I wanted to pursue life instead of holding fast to fantasies of death. I wanted this Jesus. And she goes on to say, when I woke up that Christmas morning, I experienced the kind of healing that can only come from God. I was finally at peace. See, when Jesus, who is God, comes into us, he transforms us, doesn't he? As he transforms her. That's why I believe in Jesus. But there's something else that that passage said. Not just that he is Emmanuel, God with us. But he also heard, didn't we, from the angel to Joseph, he is God saving us. She will give birth to a son. You ought to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And that name Jesus literally means the Lord saves. Now, I don't know how the rest of this series is going. It's meant to be on the creed. Are you doing it all? I don't know if you are. I hope you are. I'm not just missing bits out of the creed. And you'll talk about the death of Jesus. I've got to be careful I don't do somebody else's sermon. But I can't talk about what Jesus means to me unless I also talk about what he's done for me. That he saved me. Can I use an image that sometimes I've used that I find really helpful to think about what Jesus has done for me? And uh, when we uh, moved into the house, you get provided with a house as an archdeacon, a bit like you do as a vicar. Um, but we had to have some new carpets put down. Of course, you look at me in the shop, and when it goes down, you suddenly go, oh my goodness, that is far lighter than I imagined it was going to be. And then all you can imagine is this is going to be a nightmare keeping this clean. Well, I want to imagine a, a house at your house, where you put down the whitest, whitest carpet you can imagine. And at the doorbell goes, and you get to the door, and there at the door is a friend of yours, someone you love, but they've just traipsed their way across the muddy beach that is Western Supermare. There's mud all up their boots. And you look and say, I love you, but you ain't coming in there like this. Not on your Nelly. Because if you come in, you will mess up this carpet. So what do you do? You love them, but they can't come in. So you call upstairs to your son. Oi, can you come down? And your son comes down and looks and says, I'll tell you what I'll do. Here, look, here's my wonderful clean slippers. Takes them off and says, you have those and you give me your boots and I'll take those and I'll deal with it. And you go in wearing my beautiful slippers. That is an image of what God does through us, through Jesus when he dies on a cross. God and his presence and what heaven is like is like that beautiful house with wonderful carpets. And it's not that he doesn't love us or want us to come in. Lots of people think that somehow God doesn't love people and therefore keeps them out. It's not that he doesn't want them. He just knows that if they come in, they will mess heaven up. Because all of us have picked up spiritual mud through the week through the days, through our life, isn't we? The things we've said and done that have hurt others and hurt God. We've accumulated all that mud. And the problem is, if we're to experience the fullness of being in God's presence, which he longs to give us, he says, I've got to deal with a mess. 
And he does that through Jesus. And Jesus literally hands us his cleanliness and says, I'll take your mess. And I experienced that. The most important word I learned when I was a teenager as I went to a Christian youth group was the word grace. I've never forgotten it. It's become the most important word to me. It's grace. You've been saved by grace. And grace simply means I can do nothing to earn God's forgiveness and love and blessing. Uh, I don't normally go on holidays like this. I have to tell you, it's our 30th wedding anniversary. We went to Mauritius three weeks ago, four weeks ago. I had a very strange moment in there because we got taken on a tour. We were meant to go and see some sort of lovely things. Anyway, we got taken on our way to a Hindu temple by a Muslim guide. That was interesting. And uh, there was literally gods everywhere that you could sacrifice for all sorts of things. And I got talking to the man. He said, you know what you need to do also is, is um, we started telling me about how they went to the toilet. He said, we always, uh, uh, always uh, put our left foot in first, and then when, our left foot, when we come out, put our left foot out first, because that brings good luck. Except when, if you're going into your house, you always put your right foot first, and then you put your right foot first when you come out. Why? To get good luck. And then he showed me all these gods, and he kept trying to get me to the, go to the God of wealth, because that would then give me blessing. And it was just a wonderful moment when Fran and I, my wife, looked at each other and went, Thank goodness we're Christians. We don't have to do any of this. Because Jesus did it all. I simply have to trust him. I can't have to do anything. I can just know with certainty that God will bless me. Why? Because he tells me that in Jesus I have every blessing in the heavenly realms, it tells me in Ephesians. I don't have to try and twist God's arm or make him do this or or prove I'm good enough to do it. No, no. It's just a gift of his grace if I put my trust in him. The most important reason why this matters to me is, is not just for that moment when I was, and I can't tell you because I became a Christian about five times when I was a teenager. I kept going on summer camps and I think, oh, maybe I'm not a Christian or maybe I'm not. And so I'd pray the prayer every, week, you know, every year, every time I went. But eventually I got there. But it's the fact that I need God's grace every single day. I need the grace of Jesus every day. Do you know, uh, taking communion has become more and more important to me because since I've become an archdeacon, I've realized how grumpy I am. I deal with a lot of messy situations and a lot of people who can sometimes not be very, well, they mess things up. And do you know, it makes me really angry sometimes and fed up. And I realize that I'm not very Christ-like as an archdeacon. So when I take the bread and the wine, it's become really important to me that there's a physical bread and there's a physical wine, which is why COVID was really hard. Why? Because now, whenever I take bread and wine, literally I think, as I'm eating it, I'm eating grace. And when I'm drinking, I'm drinking grace. And literally, it is grace that sorts me out again. And grace makes me ready again to face the week that lies ahead. I want to end by just showing you a little bit of video uh, you may have seen this because it's going a bit viral at the minute. Uh, it keeps coming up my Twitter feeds or my Facebook feeds, wherever it is. But, well, let me just show it to you. It's about a minute and a half. And then I'll just tell you why it's really impacted me this week. So hopefully we'll be able to see it.
It's extraordinary. And why I love it is because it just reminds me, that is what Jesus Christ does for me and what grace does for me each and every day. Sometimes I disobey him on purpose. Sometimes it kind of just happens as I'm going along. And yet every day grace is there, like that trampoline, to catch me and ping me back. To ping me back on the road to walk with Jesus. It's never not there. It's there each and every day. My friends, that is why I believe in Jesus Christ. And if you don't know him, if you've never put your trust in him, can I urge you to do it today? You don't have to do anything except say thank you. Amen.